Let me begin by welcoming everyone who braved the elements and came out this morning. We do have a really good number here, and uh, that's a testament to your faith and your willingness to come and serve God. So we're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, and I know we do have visitors in the midst, um, we're glad you're here. Hope you'll want to come back and be with us again in the future. This morning we are properly starting um, our theme for the year, and our theme for the year is going to be based on Matthew 16 and verse 18, as you see above me, upon this rock I will build my church. And we're going to talk about the Lord's church. We're going to look at it from several, several different vantage points and talk about what really identifies the Lord's church and so, more, and so forth, and I'll get more into that in the lesson this morning. In this first quarter, we're going to talk about the idea of order, order in my church. And we'll look at uh, and take as a, a basic passage, one in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But we're going to look at things that bring order and how, in one sense, Christ, and, and I'm making a little bit of a play on words, but not much, the idea of commanded various things. And so he ordered, as it were, uh, his church to be built in such a fashion or such a way. We're going to look at that. So, order in my church. Let's start with that verse in 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll find it in verse 40. And we hear it quoted from time to time, let all things be done decently and in order. And so Paul commanded, and we just heard uh, the passage read for us from 1 Corinthians 14, and this idea of order in the Lord's church. And this is the first point that I want to make about it. The Lord's church should be identified by order. I don't know if you, and I know a lot of you did, grow up the way I did, the religious background that I had. Perhaps you went from church to church, perhaps even as I did, denomination to denomination, becoming a part of maybe one or more denominations, various practices that maybe you took for granted, that's just the way they did things at that church. You may have liked them. You may not have liked them. You may have questioned, and um, maybe the answer that you got was, that's just the way we do things, or so-and-so believed this in the past, or whatever it might be. But really what you come away with, and what so many people have with that as their religious background, or perhaps nothing, just a set of beliefs that have been passed around and passed on from previous generations, is that there's a certain amount of disorder or even chaos, uh, at least in our belief system. And yet, in the Lord's Church, what should identify the Lord's Church, first and foremost, is that there is order. We'll use phrases, and I won't so much this morning, but we will use phrases like, why we do what we do. Uh, I started using that phrase, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, especially when we would have maybe a group of new converts, and we'd, I'd talk about various things that, uh, that brought order to the church and why we did things a certain way, why we do what we do. But there is order to it. And we might make a couple more observations. During this year, we're going to be dealing, and I, I looked at you know, trying to find one word that I wanted to use, and I kept saying, no, there, there are a number of different words that I want to use to talk about the church and the overall goal, the, the far-reaching goal for this year. So during this year, we'll be dealing with, quote-unquote, the nature 
of the local church. Now you'll notice I say local church because I'm really going to focus on that. There is the Lord's church the world over. And we'll make mention of that and what every church has in common. But I want to really focus our attention on the church here. The local church at East Orange. So we'll talk about the nature of the local church, what God meant for it to be. When Jesus builds it, and he still does, build his church in a particular place, we are talking about and we are part of a church that is built in East Orange, New Jersey. So when it is, what is the nature of that church? Or what characterizes a true church that's constructed by Jesus? How would you know a church? If you stumbled upon it, how would you know that it is the church of Christ? Um, One that belongs to him. Christ's church, Jesus' church, the Lord's church. How would you know that? Now you might read a sign, and it might say a certain thing, but it might not belie what is really inside. So how do you know if the church is really constructed by Jesus? To make another point, as we will note, there are identifiable marks. In other words, you should be able to see certain things and it should identify that church as either one that belongs to the Lord or it does not belong to the Lord. It is either ordered, as it were, by Christ or it is one of disorder and it is not His church. So, there are identifiable marks. There are things which exemplify. When I say it like that, I mean... That while we may not speak of everything in a local church, we speak of examples of order that exemplify the fact that this is a local church built by Christ. And so we're going to talk about some of those things. Not so much this morning, but we will single out things that exemplify a local church built by Christ. Things that distinguish. And when we say distinguish, we mean set it apart. We mean that it is different. And it is one that is set apart from, say, all other faiths or all other beliefs. And this one is what Jesus stands for. We might talk about another faith and we might say this is what this religious leader stands for. But in this case, what we want to know is what distinguishes a church that stands for for what Jesus stands for. So it distinguishes a certain collective. And I'll use that term throughout the year because, as Ed talked about We are collected, as it were, by God and brought together. We do come from all different walks of life. I venture to say that most probably a guy from North Alabama like myself, you would not have crossed paths with had it not been for the Lord's church. Certainly not all of us. So we are collected, as it were. And we are a collective, and we will really explore 1 Corinthians 12, albeit not this morning. But we'll look at that idea of members in particular or individually, but brought together as a collective so that we might talk about the church of Christ at, and in our case, East Orange. Let's go a little further. We are comprised of brethren from different backgrounds. That's that's certain. We have different, even in this room, as we look around, we see that there are different social backgrounds. Different ethnic backgrounds, uh, you know, from different countries, different origins, different colors of our skin, etc., etc. We have different educational backgrounds. In this collective, we have people from a very limited educational background all the way to those that have PhDs. We have people 
from different religious backgrounds. And this is one of the most diverse. Wes and I come from an area that when you stand up and address a congregation, you know that a great percentage of people are second, third, maybe fourth. I even, at uh, one point, we had a member that was at the church I came from. She was seventh generation member of the Church of Christ. That's not the case here. I don't know how far back some of you go, but I know most of you, it is not more than a couple of generations. There are some that go further than that. But for the most part, we are people, you are like I am, from a totally different religious background. We came to the Lord's Church. We came to the belief that we have. We came to the understanding. We came to the commandments or the order of Jesus Christ because... Just as T.J. led the song, we were seeking, we were looking, and we found. But you know, when you come from different backgrounds, there can be, there can develop a real us versus them mentality. And, and it can be severe, so much so that you have one group within a local congregation who won't even speak to the other group. You can have that. But even if you don't have that, you can harbor a feeling of there is us and the people like me, maybe socially, ethnically, educationally, even religiously, there, there are, there's us and there's them. And I hope we get away from that this year. I hope that what we come to understand is there is us and there is our Lord. Regardless of all of the, those differences, because our Lord has brought us together he has collected us, and we are united in faith. And it is a like, precious faith like Peter talks about. And we are one in that faith. We are members of the Lord's church, and we are joined together as a body. And we, if, if we have really focused our attention on some of the things that we've been saying over the last couple of years especially... We have talked about 1 Corinthians 12 in a number of different ways, and the foot and the hand, the eyes and the ears and all of that. And we've talked about our purpose and our place and our role. And we're going to look at more of that, and maybe from a different angle or two. But the point is we are built together on a foundation that is laid by the apostles and prophets long ago. We don't have headquarters where we debate our doctrine. We don't have synods and councils where we come together and we decide what we are going to practice. That's long since been decided. Jesus decided it, and he gave it to a group of people to tell us. And that's what we have, and that's what we unite on. And the most precious thing we value as members of the Lord's church is that we look directly to Jesus for what is the truth. We don't debate that. We don't question that, at least to this point, not at this place. And I hope before God we don't, certainly not in my lifetime. Because it is not questionable. It is not something that the Bible gives and says, hey, go and decide if you really want to do it Jesus' way or you really don't. That's not what we unite upon. We could find plenty of groups who would do that, but that's not who we are. What identifies us is a collective of people built on the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. And if it is ordered in that way, we look to the Bible. If it's so ordered, then our churches can be identified by the teaching that you find within and the practices you find within. So order in my church.
You'll notice if you're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, look down at verse 33 again. The King James says, God is not the author, but you'll notice the author is in italics. God is not, and what it literally says in the original is, He is not a God of confusion or disorder. God is not a disordered God. Everything about God bespeaks of order. The three persons who are members of the Godhead are one. They totally agree. There is no conflict between them. There is no, I think this, well, I think that. They are one. And what the Lord wants is for us to be one together with them just as they are one. Now, that's a lofty goal. But it is one that is only possible if we accept from the very beginning that God is the author. And so I'll use that italicized language there. He does not author disorder or confusion. If a church is in disorder, if it's in disarray, it ain't coming from Jesus. Okay? And so if we accept that, if there is that us versus them, and if it has gotten to the point where we literally are fighting amongst ourselves about what we should do and what we should believe and what we should practice, then some or all of us are not following Jesus' orders. And so we go back to the basics and we say, how do we resolve these conflicts? How do we come to peace, if you notice verse 33? Read that again. He is not a God of disorder or confusion, but of peace. He is a God of peace. So how do we get back to peace? And the only way we get back to it, because... Let me backtrack for a second here and say it like this. I have my opinions. And anybody that knows me knows that I am a very opinionated individual. I really have opinions about everything. And you may feel free to ask me. I might or might not tell you my opinion, but I got them. I got an opinion about what the best candy bar is, who the best team is, what the best food is, how it should be cooked, what ingredients ought to be in and on and on and on. I've got an opinion about everything. And I'm sure there are some at least of you, if not most of you, who have your opinions and you feel just as strongly. So we can either be two rams that butt heads all the time, or when it comes to religious matters, we can say, you know what? God wants peace. My opinion, your opinion, is not important. Jesus' opinion, no. But what Jesus said, his law. Because if you look at this word disorder or confusion in verse 33, it is the exact opposite of anarchy. When you have a place who does not respect the law of God, I mean a collective, a group of people... And all they respect is my opinion, my view, I think, I feel. Then you've got total disarray. Disorder. And we're going to fight each other like when I was back there, an idiot back there, you know, as a teenager. And when I had my opinion and another person had theirs, we fought. And whoever was still standing got their way. Now we can either do that or we can say, you know what, let's put away childish things like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, and let's appeal to Jesus. 
And so when we talk about 1 Corinthians 13, let all things be done decently and in order, as in all the churches of the saints, Paul says here in verse 33. We talk about the unity we really have. We talk about what we are united in. How we come together. How we do believe the same thing. We're not talking about, you know, I... My opinion is Alabama's the best team and West, you know, it's Auburn. I'm right, but we're not talking about that, you know. We're talking about things that have to do with the Lord's church. And when that's the case, neither West nor I nor you or anyone else has an opinion. It is what Jesus says, if it is a church built by Him. So we speak of what one should find. And what one must find if it is a church that is quote-unquote ordered by Christ. Things being done decently, that is properly or decorously, if you will, the, the right decorum. And according to order. And that's what identifies a local church belonging to Christ. We speak of how to achieve that and how to maintain that. And we're going to look at that, especially in this first quarter. But there's a great threat to this order. And I want to close out this morning talking about this threat. God warns us, and he warns us explicitly. I want you to go back with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I realize we're not talking about the church in the book of Deuteronomy. We're talking about the nation of Israel. But if you understand the Bible's teaching, you realize that God had a nation of people in the Old Testament, and he does today. It's just that that nation has now become the church. So these warnings are very explicit and they're very applicable to our nation. God warns us, for example, if you're in Deuteronomy, go to Deuteronomy 4. And let's just read a couple of passages here. We'll start in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 4. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments, which I teach you, to do them, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers gives you. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, and neither shall you diminish from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor, and that is a group of people to the south of Canaan who were worshiping a false idol called Baal. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God has destroyed them from among you. So you can see how God feels about other worship. But you that did cleave, Unto the Lord your God. Same word for marriage there. Perfectly joined to God. Did cleave unto the Lord your God. Are alive every one of you this day. Behold. I have taught you statutes and judgments. Even as the Lord my God commanded me. That you should do in the land. Whither you go to possess it. Keep therefore. And do them. Moses is warning for God here. For this is your wisdom and your understanding. In the sight of the nations. Which shall bear all these, or which shall hear rather all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation, the nation of Israel, is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who has God so near to them, as the Lord our God is in all those things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Now, why do I read this passage? Because this ought to be my mind about the Lord's church. Sometimes we're inclined to look at a church over here or look at a church over there. We know it is not the Lord's church, but we find things within it that we like. 
And we are wont to say, I like that. And I like the way they do this. Or I, I wish I was part of that church because they have so and so such and such. And God would be looking at me and saying, what nation, what church is there so great? Besides the one that follows the statutes and the judgments and the commandments. Sometimes we look at that with a little disdain. You know, man, we are so bent on every little law. That's exactly right. We are. So much so that some mockingly call us the church of the book rather than the church of Christ. Or the church of the Bible. I don't take offense at that. And I used to tell people that years ago going to school. I don't really take offense at that. If I'm someone who's a member of the church that is the church of the book, then that's exactly what the Lord wanted. What nation is there so great as the one that has the statutes and judgments of God? Now notice as it goes on, turn a few pages to chapter 12 and go down with me to verse 28. When he continued to talk in this kind of language, observe and hear all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever. When you do that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. Verse 29. When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before you, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them, and dwell in their land. In other words, why are they being punished for their disobedience? Why are you inhabiting it for your obedience? Well, when that happens, verse 30, take heed to yourself that you be not snared, entrapped is the idea, by following them after that they've been destroyed from before you. And that you inquire not after their gods, their religion, you see, their religious practices, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? In other words, one of the most dangerous questions that you can ask is to stray away from God's way and say, how does somebody else do it? Maybe it's better the way they do it. Maybe I'm looking at a church of 5,000 people who seems to be able to add 100 people a month, and I'm looking at a church over here that I'm part of, and it's struggling to teach someone the truth and get them to follow it, and I begin to say, well, maybe that church's way is better. God says, you be careful that you don't get snared by that, trapped by that. And start asking the question, how do they serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Because there's a great danger to that. That you shall not do, verse 31, so unto the Lord your God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates hath they done unto their gods. And even to the point in some of the cases they sacrifice their own children to some of those false gods. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. You shall not add thereto, nor diminish from it. We know, however, if you'll turn over with me to 2 Kings, we know that they did not listen to what God said. And I want you to hear what is said here. Go with me to 2 Kings 17. I'm just going to read a small portion of it, but in chapter 17 down in verse 14. Yeah, that's where I want Verse 14. Notwithstanding, they would not hear but they harden their necks. We talk about people being stiff-necked or stubborn. That's what this means here. They were stubborn, like to the neck of their fathers, that did not believe in the Lord their God. In verse 15, and they rejected his, God's statutes, and his covenant that he made with their fathers. 
They rejected his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain. That is foolishness, worthlessness. And they became foolish and worthless. And they went after the nations that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. They were stubborn. They went after what the nations had. They did it exactly like the nations did. Read one other passage with me in 1 Samuel. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And you may remember that when God first put the people in the land, He was their king and their only king. He gave them their laws, their statutes, their rules. He was their leader and their only leader. And He had those who taught them for Him, like the high priest and the prophets and the judges that He occasionally sent, etc., But that was not good enough for the people. They didn't like it like that. And so 1 Samuel chapter 8, they came to Samuel. And down in verse 4, you can hear them when they say, All the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel. And they said, verse 5, unto him, Behold, you're old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. And they were, you know, lousy judges. They really were. They're not doing a good job. And so make us a king to judge us like all the nations, they said. We want to be like everybody else. We don't want to be different. If you'll notice down in verses 19 through 20, after Samuel had repeatedly warned them of exactly what would happen if they were like everybody else, if you go and be like everybody else, you'll get your king, and this is what will happen. Down in verse 19... Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And we know the history. They got their king, and it was exactly what God had warned them. It was exactly what Samuel warned them here, and it was an utter failure. And a person might look at all and say, you know, that's old history. I mean, it really is. We're talking about a nation here. We're talking about the government here. And we're not talking about the church. And my point would be, are we not? Because the Lord's church, God's holy nation. Remember several times we read 1 Peter 2 last year. We are a nation of people. We are God's holy nation. And we do have a king. And his name is Jesus. God's holy nation today is subject to the same temptation to be like everybody else. Oh, you hear it. In a few weeks, I will have been a member of the church for 40 years. That's hard to believe sometimes, but it's the truth. In 40 years, you know, I've been in numerous conversations with people. I've sat through I don't know how many business meetings, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if there's been one thing that's been consistent, Throughout those 40 years, it is that people get dissatisfied and they want things to be different. And when they want things to be different, sometimes maybe they're not even hearing what they're saying. But raised as an issue in a business meeting or a conversation somewhere or on the phone or across the kitchen table or whatever, someone will say, such and such church does so and so. And you know... It's valid to listen to it. And there may even be a good point there. Because that church may be doing what Jesus wants, and we may not be. 
But isn't that the real question? Not, is that church doing such and such, and I like the results of what that church is getting. So I want to be like everybody else. But isn't the real question, what does Jesus want? We're subject to the same temptation. We see the flashing lights in the other place, and we want to be like everybody else. That's all the people of Israel could see. They saw, man, these other nations are strong. they got a king to lead them, and we got you, and you're an old man, and your son stink. You know, that's all they could see. And nobody was saying, God is our king, and what does he want? No one was saying that. Well, Samuel was, but none of the people were. I want you to consider some passages. I'll come back to these. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time. Just read them with me and hear the warnings in the New Testament. And see that it is no different than it was in the Old. That it is people, regardless of what they have, even if they were a church whose first preacher was the Apostle Paul, they still are people and still wanting to be like everybody else. In Philippians chapter 3, for example, down in verse 16, Nevertheless, whereto we've already attained, Paul said, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Now that's not going and looking for something new. That's just staying the course. Brethren, be followers together of me, Paul says, and of other people that do what's right. Mark them, scope them out literally in the original. The people who are walking, so that you'll have all of us as an example to follow. Verse 18, subject to the same threat. For many walk. Notice, this is just in the first century. This is barely 30 years after the church begins at Pentecost. And he's saying, not a few, not one here and there, but many walk. Of whom I've told you often, and I tell you now even weeping. It's so disturbing to him that he's crying about it. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, he's not talking about the idolaters in China. He's talking about members of the church. In fact, if you go up to verses 2 and 3, he warns them of people he calls dogs. People, he says, claim to be the circumcision, which would be Paul's terminology for faithful people to God. But we, Christians, are the real circumcision. So when he says in verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, that's a phrase that means they want what they want. And that's what they care about. And whose glory is in their shame, they mind earthly things. Go over to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice down at the end of 1 Timothy when he says this in verse 18. I commit this charge to you, Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before you, that you war a good warfare. And you hold on to your faith, verse 19, and a good conscience, which some, and he means members of the church here, Christians, some have put away. They've divorced themselves, as it were, from the truth, the faith. And of their faith, they've made shipwreck. And he even names a couple, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that he says he's delivered unto Satan. Look at chapter 6 as he closes out this book. And by, this by no means every statement in the book. But look at chapter 6 and verse 20, or 21. That's not what I want. What did I put down here? Yeah, 20, it is right. Oh, no wonder. Don't turn to 2 Timothy like I did. Go to 1 Timothy, and that'll work better. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20. 
O Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings. And that's how it starts, isn't it? People have a conversation, and it's as much as if they're babbling. I don't mind having an exchange and a conversation as long as both of us come to it and say, let's go to this. Let's see what this says and this only. That's fine. That's healthy. That's what we want. That's what God wants. But when you're just in a conversation and people are raising their own logic, their own ideas, their own beliefs with no substance, it's foolish. It's worthless. It's knowledge, falsely so-called. And notice verse 21, which some professing have fallen away concerning the faith. Go to 2 Timothy 2. Look down in verse 14. You'll recognize verse 15, but notice what it's sandwiched by. Verse 14 of 2 Timothy 2. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they don't fight about words to no profit, but to the undermining or subverting of the hearers. Now verse 15. Work hard, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that does not need to be ashamed because he handles correctly or rightly the word of truth. Again, sandwiched between another, verse 16, shun profane and vain babblings. They will increase to more ungodliness. And he goes on here with this. You'll notice that in this passage, he, he speaks, verse 17, of a Hymenaeus, maybe the same one, we don't know, and a Philetus, who, verse 18, concerning the truth, have fallen away, saying that the resurrection is past already. Now, I've got to tell you, when I first became a member of the church and I first started preaching, and I saw this passage for the first time, I looked at that and I said, how could any Christian be so stupid as to be believing and preaching that the resurrection, the one thing we live our whole lives for, is already past? And I thought, man, and people in the first century were messed up until about 10 or 12 years, maybe for the first time, into being a Christian, I started hearing that there was another group of brethren in our day who believed the same thing. And I thought, well, that'll never get anywhere. And it did. And it's a real problem doctrinally today. Incredible. Same old bad teaching crops up again. Why? How does that happen? Because people are not following the order of Jesus Christ. I mentioned one other passage to you. I'm not going to spend much time on it here, but chapter 3. And I will come back to this. And let me just summarize chapter 3 beginning in verse 14 where Paul begins to say, Timothy, you just hang on to what you've known. You started learning it from your mom and your grandmother, the Holy Scripture. And then you were taught. I taught you. I'm an apostle. The apostles have taught you. And every word of God that's written down, the Bible, is God-breathed. And it's got everything you need. You hold on to that. And then in chapter 4, he says, because the time is going to come for you when people are going to reject you. And they're they're going to reject what you teach. And they're going to reject it in favor of what they want to hear. They want something tickling their ears that feels good, you know? Something that makes them feel good. Something that tells them what they want to hear. And they're going to heap to themselves people who will teach them that. And you just hang on. And you teach the truth. I remind you of verse 10. You'll notice I've got that on here. 
And down in verse 10, when he's talking about, after he said he's about to die, and he starts talking about wanting to see faithful people, he mentions a guy who just a couple of years before, he had talked about a very profitable co-worker. His name was Demas. And he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Oftentimes people will look at that and they'll say, you know, Demas must have found a woman. <laughs> Demas must have gone after riches, you know, instead of traveling around with Paul like a vagabond preaching. Could have been those things. Sometimes I wonder if Demas found a better religion. If Demas found a more attractive, more popular religion. It may be some of the things that were cropping up in Paul's day that he's fighting so hard in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy if Demas bought into some of that. I know that's happened in my lifetime. And I suspect that you've known people that's been the case as well. You hang on to the truth. We're going to talk about order in the Lord's church. Where it comes from, how to achieve it, how to maintain it. Maybe you're here this morning. And you're not a child of God. You're not a Christian. But you look at yourself and you say, I want to obey Jesus. I know Jesus has the truth. I want to follow the truth. I believe He's the Son of God. Maybe this morning you're willing to confess that and to change your life and live your life by the order of Jesus Christ. And you know that the first order of business is you need to be baptized. You understand that. That in that act of baptism, your sins are washed away. You become a child of God. You become a member of the Lord's church. And you want to do that this morning. Or maybe it is that you look at yourself and you say, I've been baptized, but my life hasn't been very well ordered by Christ. And I need to change that today. Won't you please come while we stand and sing?